It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's been 90 days since the war broke out between Israel and Hamas. And with no end in sight, the death toll is shooting up in Gaza, and the UN is warning of a humanitarian disaster. More airstrikes and shelling has been reported in the southern city of Khan Yunis, and the humanitarian situation in the territory continues to deteriorate. The new year bringing increasing fears that Israel's war with Hamas could escalate into a wider conflict. And this week, the war took a new turn. An explosion rocked southern Beirut Tuesday evening, killing seven Hamas militants. Hamas says its deputy political leader, Salah al-Aruri, has been killed in a blast in Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. Israel neither confirmed nor denied that it was behind the killing of Salah al-Aruri. But his death has unleashed fears that the war could now spread beyond Gaza. Hamas called the attack a cowardly assassination. In a statement released by Hezbollah, it says its hand is on the trigger. And this is a memorable day for what follows. And then, in a dizzying 24 hours for the Middle East, with tensions already at snapping point, a round of attacks in Iran shook the region. State-run media in Iran are reporting that more than 100 people have been killed and many more wounded after explosions at an event honoring a prominent general. Pro-regime figures already blaming the Israelis for this. There is no evidence at this stage for that. As the bomb attacks in Iran were unfolding, 2,000 kilometers to the south, there was more trouble brewing. The greater concern, I think, at the moment isn't just what happens Uh, in Lebanon uh, and northern Israel with Hezbollah. It is what happens down to the south with Yemen. With America and Britain issuing a final warning to the Houthis to cease their attacks in the Red Sea or face the consequences, the region has shifted even closer to the brink of war. So the question is, is America going to take up being the guarantor of the Middle East again, or is it going to carry on trying to downgrade its presence in the Middle East? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, will the war in Gaza spread? (laughs) 
I'm Richard Spencer. Uh, until recently, I was the Middle East correspondent of The Times. Uh, I've still been helping out coverage of the current crisis in the Middle East. I've been in uh, Israel for most of the period since October the 7th, though I'm now uh, back in London. And uh, I'm about to become China correspondent, but I shall again continue to be looking at uh, issues in the Middle East from that perspective. Well, Richard, it's great to have you and your expertise to guide us through this. We've all been watching the situation in Gaza for months now. And then on Tuesday, there was a development, not in Gaza, actually in the southern suburbs of of Beirut, which caught a lot of people by surprise. Just talk us through it. What do we now know about exactly what happened so Tuesday evening, there was an explosion in uh, an area of Beirut called Dahia, the predominantly Shia suburb of southern uh, Beirut, where Hezbollah has its headquarters, one of the parts of Lebanon where Hezbollah are the dominant political and military actor. Hezbollah, as, as we all know, has a, a very large uh, fighting force, probably the strongest fighting force in Lebanon, probably stronger than the army itself. It's fought in the Syrian civil war. It's an ally of Hamas. It's fought against Israel on a number of occasions. And since the start of the Gaza conflict, Hezbollah has been exchanging missile attacks over the uh, Israeli border and lost quite a large number of its fighters in attacks by Israel, but not engaged in full-scale war as yet. What happened on Tuesday was that there was some sort of strike, we think probably a drone-fired missile hit a building in Dahia where a Hamas meeting was going on. Some of Hamas's leadership is based in Beirut. And among those killed were, were, was a guy called Salah al-Aurori, who is the deputy head of Hamas. We must defend our people against settler attacks on our villages. We must defend our people against the aggression of the occupation. He's the dominant figure in the militant scene in the West Bank. And he's the main liaison with Hezbollah and and through Hezbollah, to some extent, with the Iranian leadership and the Revolutionary Guard, which uh, uses Beirut to uh, transmit orders or uh, coordinate activities between uh, Hamas and Hezbollah. So he's a very significant figure, and he was killed with a couple of other leaders of Hamas. Uh, that was immediately acknowledged by both Hezbollah and Hamas. And the assumption is it was uh, an Israeli military attack. I don't think there's any real doubt about that, although it hasn't uh, been claimed by Israel, which tends not to publicly claim assassinations on, on foreign soil. What we're waiting for with this killing is what the response will be, partly from Hamas, of course, but most particularly from Hezbollah. We had a speech uh, immediately afterwards by Hassan Nasrallah, the Hezbollah leader, who uh, basically deferred the issue. I think Hezbollah are still weighing up their response. They say there will be a response uh, because of this attack in a, you know, in a Hezbollah stronghold in Beirut. We, we are still waiting to see whether that means that Hezbollah will become more closely involved in the war, send more missiles into Israel, um, escalate the situation on the border. But I think they will have to make some sort of response. So, Richard, this is clearly a key figure in Hamas. He's also a key figure in the liaison between Hamas and some of the groups who are sympathetic to them, Hezbollah and even Iran. So a very important figure in in the, the Hamas 
constellation. Do we know if he had any direct impact on October the 7th? Was there any particular reason why he was one of the Hamas leaders they were targeting? So the, the reasons behind his targeting now are quite opaque. Whether he was involved in the planning for the events of October the 7th is, is one of the big questions. Now, the, the, those attacks had a very Hezbollah look about them to people who follow Hezbollah. Uh, Hezbollah have occasionally demonstrated their prowess at kidnapping earlier in 2023. They held a public sort of training display for journalists and supporters in which they performed some of the sort of kidnapping and fence-breaking tactics that Hamas showed in October the 7th. Wow, that's something they show off to reporters. So that's something they show off to reporters. And, you know, those of us who saw that, you know, were really reminded of that on October the 7th. So there could easily have been some, you know, liaison on the training uh, situation. But we're also told that Arori himself uh, did not have advance notice of the actual attack when it occurred. Uh, there's a story that he was called half an hour before the attack uh, began and told to notify Hassan Nasrallah. And that was when Hassan Nasrallah found out about it. But the reason he's been attacked, I think, is much simpler now, which is that there's a strong pressure on Israel to fulfill its pledge to target the Hamas leadership. It's now spent three months getting on for in attacking Gaza, bombing Gaza, just over two months on the ground in Gaza. It's wrought huge damage. As we know, it's destroyed 70 to 80 percent of Gaza's urban area, built up area, caused mass displacement of the people, at least 20,000 dead, including many thousands of women and children. And the pressure on it is to say, well, you said you were going after the Hamas leadership, and yet you haven't killed anyone from the Hamas leadership. And I think Arori, whose uh, presence in Beirut was no secret, I think he was the obvious and easiest target for them. I think that may be the simple reason why he was uh, struck. And Richard, as tensions were already ratcheting up after the killing of Al-Arori in Lebanon, suddenly news broke of another attack, this time in Iran. What can you tell us about that? So we saw this very serious attack uh, uh, yesterday in Iran, uh, in a town called Kaman. It's where the former leader of the Quds Force, uh, General Qasem Soleimani, is buried. And a lot of the people who were killed were people on their way to attend a mourning ceremony on the anniversary, the fourth anniversary of the death of Qasem Soleimani. And this bomb attack, which killed, uh, they now say, 84 people, um, uh, looks to have been targeted at that at that ceremony. It's the largest loss of life from a terrorist attack in Iran for, for several decades. The scale of it immediately made people think it must be related in some way to current events elsewhere in the Middle East. However, it's, it's not a modus operandi of any of the players involved in that in that war. It's certainly not the sort of thing that Israel has traditionally done. So we don't think Israel is likely to be behind those attacks in Iran, but it does just raise tensions even more at a time when it's incredibly febrile in the Middle East. And Richard, you said earlier, one of the reasons the Israelis would have carried out that attack in Lebanon was because they are under so much pressure from the Americans to show that they are specifically targeting Hamas leadership. And they haven't had very much success at that so far, but to show that they are targeting Hamas leaders with precision, not just wiping out swathes of Gaza and killing thousands of civilians. Whilst that assassination 
showed real precision, though, when it was carried out on Lebanese soil, it caused a lot of people around the world to gasp because there was instantly a fear that this war could now spread. This could become a regional conflict. Is that something, as somebody who watches this very closely, is that something the Israelis are prepared for? Would they be willing to fight on two fronts? Are they, are they ready for a war with Lebanon? Yeah, this is the, the, the million-dollar question in the Middle East at the moment. Is Israel prepared for a two-front war? And, and actually, <laughs> that does raise the question of what prepared means. The public of northern Israel are furious with the uh, lack of security on the northern border with Hezbollah. And there's been, a, there's been a clear division amongst the Israeli leadership about what to do about that. Some of the Israeli military have been talking very tough, particularly Yoav Gallant, the former general who's now the defense minister in Benjamin Netanyahu's government. He's been openly advocating for an invasion of southern Lebanon. You know, they're not only prepared, they're actually keen to do so. And when I was on the northern border a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking to a brigadier general there who said, yes, we've got our battle orders and we've presented them to the government. We're just waiting for the, um, the signal to go if that's what we're ordered to do. Other people say, oh, come on, let's be realistic here. America, particularly in a US election year, does not want to find itself with the Middle East in flames, with Israel fighting wars on two fronts, Iran possibly getting involved. So um, there's two very clear views on that. Benjamin Netanyahu is said to be on the side of not getting involved in Lebanon. On the other hand, he also thinks that Hezbollah don't want to get involved either. And he's, I think, put a lot of eggs in the basket of Hezbollah wanting to avoid a destructive war. So in Israel, you've got you've got a split between people who are, would welcome a war with Lebanon, even though they're already fighting in Gaza, which you'd think would spread them quite thin, and those who think it's not really on the cards so they can afford to take this risk with this assassination. Are they right? Where does Hezbollah now stand on a potential war with Israel? Lebanon as a country definitely does not want to get involved in this war. They know that in any war with Israel, it won't just be Hezbollah that's targeted. There will be a huge fallout for ordinary Lebanese. Uh, Lebanese in different fractions of that country's complicated politics and sectarian setup. So the, the Sunnis and the Christians definitely don't want to, get, want to get involved in a war with Israel at this point. So, you know, we're just looking at what Hezbollah's calculations are, what Nasrallah's calculations are, and what Iran's calculations are, because more than any other pairing, the Hezbollah leadership and the Iranian leadership do work in lockstep on their strategic planning on what to do about Israel. And Rich, we'll talk a bit more about Iran in just a moment. Before we do, though, you know, you pointed out that Lebanon itself doesn't want a war with Israel. If a war is declared with Hezbollah, would the Lebanese end up joining in? Would they be on, on side with Hezbollah? I think you'll see the Lebanese army withdrawing from southern Lebanon, keeping its head down. I don't, you're not going to see the Lebanese army joining in a war with Israel. The Lebanese army yeah. is part funded by the United States and its Western allies. Britain has a training program with the Lebanese army. And the Lebanese army has been desperately trying to stay neutral in all of Lebanon's internal political and occasional military conflicts since the end of the civil war there. So the, the Lebanese army won't be involved except in functional processes of, you know, helping civilians who need to evacuate or, uh, you know, whose 
village have been hit in missile exchanges or, or, or whatever. Yeah. So the Lebanese state won't get involved. But Hezbollah are now part of the Lebanese state. I mean, they have ministers in the government. It's a power-sharing government in Lebanon now with, with Hezbollah as part of that government. Coming up, with another Iranian proxy, the Houthis in Yemen, launching attacks from the Red Sea, how might this war still spread? And would Iran want to join the fight? That's all in just a moment. But before we get there, with so much happening in the world, if you want to understand how the news comes together and what really goes on in a newsroom, then you'll want to hear our new series, Inside the Newsroom. Episodes drop every Saturday and it's available on Apple Podcasts if you're a Times subscriber. So to work out how to find it, just log on to thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. And Richard, you pointed out that a lot will depend on Iran. We're all waiting to see where they are on this. We've sort of been waiting for the last three months to see how prepared they'll be to get involved in a conflict. Are we sort of seeing them already acting through some of their proxies? I mean, just talk us through what's happening with the Houthis Firstly, just just remind people who are listening who the Houthis are and what what they've been doing. So when the Yemen civil war broke out in in 2014 and Saudi Arabia started bombing Houthi-controlled parts of Yemen on behalf of the the recognised Yemeni government, which had been forced out of the capital by this militant group from the north of the country, the Houthis. Um, they're called the Houthis because that's the name of their leadership. The West thought, oh, who are the Houthis? We don't know who they are. They're just a ragtag bunch of tribal warriors from the hills of northern Yemen. People knew that they were kind of allied to Iran, but there was a big dispute about how strongly they were allied to Iran, or how much they were an Iranian proxy. And people just got weighed down in big 
arguments, perfectly justifiable arguments about the the suffering in Yemen, which was plunged into famine by the civil war, by the Saudi bombing of targets in Houthi-controlled Yemen, which were the, the populous areas of the northwest where thousands of civilians were killed in poorly directed Saudi airstrikes. Several human rights groups have accused Western nations of turning a blind eye to the suffering of millions in Yemen. In addition to providing intelligence support, the US, the UK and France have reportedly provided weapons to the Saudi-led coalition, which itself has been accused of indiscriminate attacks on civilians. And it just became a mess that people didn't want to touch. But the end result of this is that there's a, in this war, there's this kind of stalemate now with the Houthis controlling the northwest of the country. The Houthis are clearly closely allied to Iran now. They've been heavily armed by Iran. They have the same sort of uh, missiles now that Iran has provided to Hezbollah and, uh, and indeed to Hamas, or, or that they've built themselves on Iranian templates. And they can send missiles anywhere. They've targeted shipping, and since October the 7th, they've sent long-range missiles at Israel itself. But they've now started attacking shipping uh, that's heading through the Red Sea on its way to the Suez Canal. Now, Yemen's Houthi rebels claim they attacked two ships in the Red Sea. Iran-backed Houthis said the attacks would continue as long as Israel continues its war with Hamas. So suddenly people have woken up and thought, oh, how did we get, how did we get ourselves in this situation where this, this what we thought of as a ragtag bunch of rebels are, you know, impeding the world's premier shipping lane, you know, mm. which 10% of the world trade goes through. And, and, and what does the West do about it? That's, that's a big question, having ignored this problem for so long. That does seem to be something that America and even Britain are getting involved with. So while the, the, the war is raging in Gaza, everyone stepped back tried not to have their fingerprints on any of that. But one aspect where they are taking more action is, is with Houthis. So America and, and Britain and other countries are sending naval escorts into, into that area to protect shipping. These are land-based rebels firing precision missiles, in many cases, at shipping. So the question for America and Britain and the Western allies is, is that enough? Now, because it's targeting an Iranian-backed militia, essentially you haven't got the buy-in from, say, Russia and China, which are basically on Iran's side in these conflicts nowadays. Mm. You haven't got the buy-in from the Arab countries, which definitely want to stay out of an expanded war like Saudi Arabia and the, the UAE. So the question then is, you know, what do you do about these missile launching sites? And isn't it easier just to, to go after these missile launching sites in Yemen? That's definitely an escalation, you know, that draws the West further into this conflict that they're trying to stay out of. And where do we think Iran is at the moment in in middle of all of this? You know, we're sort of we're watching their proxies. We know that the behaviour of the Houthis, of Hezbollah, of, of Hamas will be hugely influenced by the Iranian leadership. What do we think is the tipping point for them to turn this into a much broader conflict? Well, I think they're, they're kind of rubbing their hands at the moment. I mean, I, I don't think they want a broader conflict. I think the strategy of Iran towards Israel is pretty clear. If you talk to people linked into the Iranian leadership, they're kind of fairly explicit about this. And that's the Iranian leadership. It's a key part of the revolutionary ideology of Iran has been from day one, that it wants to see the destruction of the state of Israel. It's, it's pretty unabashed about that. You know, it makes clear that that's not because it believes in the genocide of the Jews or anything like that. It just wants a non-Zionist state, Palestinian state, to replace uh, Israel. It doesn't 
believe, presumably rightly, that it can actually just invade Israel, that a full frontal assault on Israel, even with all these allies like Hezbollah and Hamas, would work. So its strategy is to wear down Israel slowly by using these militias to keep Israel permanently on edge, to make Israel feel insecure about itself, and to provoke these very intense reactions by Israel, such as we're seeing in Gaza, which Iran believes loses Israel support abroad. It sees that the the continuation of the state of Israel relies on two things. It relies on Israel itself being successful, having the support of its population, having Israelis continue to live and work and in Israel and, and keep Israel prosperous. So it wants to do things that make people to leave Israel if they can, to be insecure in Israel, to be nervous of their future. And the second prong is to, to get Israel to do things that lose its support abroad because it sees that Israel, in its view, needs American and other support to survive. So a continuous process of taking on Israel via militia organizations, whether it is in Gaza or in Lebanon or from Syria, continual pinprick attacks making Israel uneasy, that's, that's its long-term strategy for Israel. And Richard, you pointed out that one of Iran's aims is to diminish support for Israel around the world. All of this comes at a time where we've already seen South Africa launching uh, a case in the International Court of Justice against Israel, accusing it of genocide. Is there a danger for Israel that they are losing support? I think they're definitely losing support. The extent of anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian, call them what you will, protests in America is, I think, unprecedented. Clearly, opinion polls show unhappiness, even in large parts of the American Jewish population, about the way Israel has conducted the war in Gaza. Younger generations in particular, both in America and Britain and other parts of the West, are more critical of Israel than older generations. That's something that Israel needs to be wary of for the future. It's become a very divisive issue for the West, and that has its own political consequences in the way, as I say, that the West wants to see this, you know, rather go away. It doesn't, it doesn't want to see, you know, Israel pursue this war to the end, as, as Israel is promising to do. Even Israel's allies, I think, want, would rather like it to go away. The, the the interesting question is what happens outside the West? There's a lot of talk of the global South, which is a kind of very vexed and difficult term, but countries outside the traditional rivalry between, say, Western Europe and or Europe now as a whole, the EU and America on the one side and Russia on the other. This idea that the developing world has its own voice now and large parts of that world have always been sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, I think it's fair to say, particularly South Africa, where the ANC in, in apartheid era very much identified with the PLO as, yeah. a, as, as you know, twin rebel groups that were fighting for their national rights. And that's stayed very strong in South Africa. It's not all one-way traffic. One of the interesting things is the support in India for, for Israel. So there's a, there is a split in the global South too. But in a world where Western and Russian and Chinese dominance of, of the world order in things like the membership of the Security Council of the UN and financial and other institutions is being challenged by the Global South wanting a, a stronger voice, I think people are kind of looking now as to how that things like support for Israel as opposed to the Palestinians will play out in these very large growing populations outside the traditional world of power politics. Richard, if this did extend into a, a regional conflict, if it did open up a second front in this war, 
How would America view that? I think they'd view it as a disaster. President Biden, because of the election this year, has a particular reason for wanting this all to go away. He's in the classic bind of a Democrat politician in the States. He's had to go and stand beside Netanyahu, which is a thing that American ex-presidents are expected to do when Israel is under threat. But he doesn't like Netanyahu, and he's under heavy pressure from the left of his own party. I use the term left in an American context, of course, who are much more sympathetic to the Palestinians. So Biden's caught, you know, looking both ways. Uh, the opening of a second front, a, a, a war lasting a year or more in, in, in the Middle East, is, is very damaging to his electoral prospects. Richard, the Middle East has for decades now been a tinderbox. You've covered it for years. You've lived in Beirut. You're just returning from months of covering what's happening in Israel. For you personally, what are your fears about what might happen next? I first became a Middle East correspondent in early 2009. It coincided with President Obama arriving as American president in the wake of the Bush presidency. The Bush presidency was such a turning point for the Middle East because you saw these two massive events, 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan that flowed from that, and then the invasion of Iraq. Those were both these huge turning points. And that disillusioned America with its traditional role in the Middle East. And then you saw the many things flowed from that. I think the big factor now is, can America really still maintain that it is downplaying its presence in the Middle East? That was a promise of Obama, And then, of course, President Trump said, you know, America first, why are we involved in all these wars in the first place? Uh, President Biden, uh, a much more mainstream, traditional character with long ties to Israel and the security establishment, but he never really reversed that. And, you know, his signature policy was to pull out of Afghanistan. He's definitely tried to sort of not up the stakes in the Middle East. He's he's made no serious attempt to solve the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And the end result is this massive war in Israel. Who supports Israel? America. Who is the only country now that's saying, okay, Israel, if you must carry on fighting in Gaza, we're not going to criticize you for doing that. America has revealed itself once again as the essential player. It's conducting, it's overseeing, it's kind of chairing the the negotiations between the the different sides in the Middle East. Mm. The other main negotiators on the history issue besides America are... Mediators are Egypt and Qatar, both key American allies. And we've been talking about the rise of Russia and China, and they certainly are playing an increased role in the Middle East. But no one is looking to them to solve the Israel-Gaza issue. No one is looking to them to deal with the Houthis. No one is looking to them to secure shipping lanes in the Red Sea. And when Saudi Arabia, for example, was negotiating a normalization deal with Israel, you know, when it looks for guarantees for that deal, it's looking to America. So the question is, is America going to take up being the guarantor of the Middle East again? Or is it going to carry on trying to downgrade its presence in the Middle East? In which case, you know, what, what takes its place? Does this just all play out into repeated wars until some sort of new equilibrium is formed? Or does America step back in and try and create a new Middle East that it can live with and that the people of the Middle East can live with? So that's the key question that that I'm kind of leaving behind as I technically move out of the Middle East. (laughs) 
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the former Middle East correspondent for The Times, Richard Spencer, who's now moving to his perch in China. You can find all the latest from him and from our team covering the Middle East at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Priyanka Deladia. The executive producer was Fiona Leach. And sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you'd like to get in touch with us about anything you've heard in this episode or anything you'd like us to look at in future episodes, then please do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.